Welcome to the IEEE Future Networks podcast series, Podcast with the Experts, an IEEE Future Directions digital studio production. This episode is part two of the first in a series of podcasts addressing the 5G deployment challenge. It features a panel of wireless industry experts discussing 5G deployment challenges and offering some possible solutions. Moderated by David Witkowski, co-chair of the Deployment Working Group for the International Network Generations Roadmap, he continues the discussion with his Deployment Working Group co-chair Tim Page and Joanna Wang, Director of Government and Community Affairs with MODIS. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. I have with us Joanna Wang from MODIS and Tim Page from Crown Castle International. So given all the things we've talked about, the value of 5G, I'm curious, I'll start with Tim, how do we strike the balance between private investment and, and public regulation or, or public investment in, in the 5G network? I, I don't have a good answer for you. I don't know how a public utility concept would work in the U.S. of 330 million people. You know, throughout history, there's significant antitrust lawsuits, even among accepted public utilities. And in in our lifetime, probably not Joanna's, but uh, there was a company called Pacific Bell. Uh, and in certain regions of the country, it might be called South Bell or Atlantic Bell. And in 1982, 83, I'm not exactly sure, they, a, the United States government filed an antitrust lawsuit against Pac Bell, and that's how we ended up with AT&T. So I, I don't know how that would look. Uh, even today, we're looking at breaking up PG&E and that's just in one state. Right. Um, if you look at the track record for massive infrastructure projects only in California, it's not good. Right. You look at high-speed rail, where we stand. Uh, if anyone remembers the construction of the Richmond Bay Bridge, where we really only got half a bridge, the original uh, budget for that was $6 billion. It ended up being $12 billion, and it took 25 years to build. And the last issue I would, I would raise, David, is who's going to fund the $275 billion? That's right. coming from private investment. So would there be a, oh, we have to have a federal cell phone tax in order to raise the revenue to be able to do this build-out? So I'm, I, I'm not sure how that would work. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I, I certainly I think the notion of a nationalized anything. I mean, we maybe in the past as a country we were good at these national projects, and maybe that came out of our experiences of both in the Depression and World War II. Right, we were used to mobilizing at a national level. That was part of the public ethos. We we, we were okay with that. I think in today's world, it certainly feels like we're not able to do projects like that very effectively. And I think your your examples of just in the Bay Area or, or in California are well taken. Um, and it and it 
from for me personally, it sort of drives against you know some some belief systems that I have about Joanna. What are your thoughts? When we talk about 5G, I think we get siloed in our thinking that it's just about the cell site, but there's so much more behind it that goes along with that infrastructure deployment. And I think if we remember, keep those things in mind, we could find the right balance between private and public deployment models. Um, specifically, I'm talking about the fiber backbone, right? We we Nobody really sees the fiber that's being laid in the ground. It's out of sight, out of mind. We see the cell site, we don't see the fiber. It's kind of an afterthought, but none of what we're doing with these deployments will work without that. So is it possible, like the highway system, to have some national framework for a fiber model that gets fiber, you know, where, where it's needed? that access for all of the carriers, competitors, incumbents, otherwise, is fair and reasonable. That we have dig once policies that are actually helpful so that when, you know, a municipality is opening up a road, we lay the necessary conduits with the foresight to know down the line, we will need those for fiber, right? And and we can, I think, help shorten the timeframes and the challenges for deployment if that infrastructure is there already, and then we just access it when we're ready to deploy. So that's a really interesting perspective. Uh, certainly the city is in, or a municipality is in, or a state highway agency is in a much better position to put fiber and power, which are the two things that are necessary to make any wireless deployment work, um, if we could do that. I'm curious to, to know whether or not the right answer is to put in the fiber itself or, or simply to put in the conduits. It would be a lot less expensive for the city to put the conduits underground during the road construction, those dig once policies that you talk about, that's definitely something that I've been a proponent of when I speak to cities and agencies. I would want to throw your point back over to Tim for a response because I know Crown Castle has made a significant investment in fiber. You've acquired at least two that I know of, probably more fiber companies. Tim, what are your thoughts on the idea of public investment in fiber or public investment in conduit to enable private investment in the wireless network? So I like the concept, uh, but here again, I'm going to give away my age. Um, we have lived through, and David, you're uh, well aware, when, the, when there was a mass move in the United States for fiber optic cable and hundreds and hundreds of miles of this was deployed, in the late 80s, early 90s, in an attempt for a number of things, but one of them was to convert television cable over to fiber optic. Mm. So why am I bringing that up? That fiber is laid in the ground unused um, literally to this, to this time, having met with a number of municipalities who have this fiber already there, 
and they have no subscribers, no customers, that was put in the ground with the, if you build it, they'll come. I just want to point out that there's a tremendous amount of fiber that's already there, not being used. And that's a great, so, but you're right. Uh, I think that, I think that there have been investments that have wound up being com almost completely meaningless. Uh, I'm thinking of one, yeah. I'm thinking of one Western city in particular that I spoke with their chief information officer and he expressed to me that the city had put fiber optics everywhere in their city in the hopes that it would be, a, as you put it, a build it and they will come. The problem was is that their prices were four times higher than it would cost on a, say, a per linear foot basis to just dig up the street or micro trench fiber into the existing street. So you had this huge fiber network that went everywhere. But because the city wanted to generate a lot of revenue from it, they priced it so high that no one would use it. And so why did they invest that? Well, I guess they could use it for themselves, but they don't need those multiple bundles of fiber to, to control traffic lights. They need one fiber to do that. So, Joanna, how do you respond to that? I think that goes to the point of what I was mentioning earlier, right? Fiber infrastructure at fair and reasonable rates. If there was a national framework or regulatory scheme that said and established what those reasonable rates are, it wouldn't give the local jurisdictions an opportunity to say, you know, if you want to participate in this, this is the rate that it's going to be at and give the carriers an option to pursue other opportunities. I think if it was established, right, similar to power rates established at a statewide level, the carriers might see the opportunity cost and the benefit really, the economic benefit of using existing wire, um, fiber infrastructure. I, I think too, we live, we have the benefit of living in the Silicon Valley. We are leading the world in the technology deployment, and we have, despite that, we still have areas that don't have fiber here that, you know, just you go a little bit north into the North Bay, we drive up an hour, and there are areas with dead cell service. You go to the coast, and residents there don't have an opportunity for who their cable provider is. There's areas where they outright lack cell service, dead zones. And that's 45 minutes away from the Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. So yeah. what are we doing to make sure we're servicing those areas? If there were a national fiber rollout, we could make sure that those hard to reach places have access. Mm -hmm. So you would argue, if I'm hearing you correctly, that whether it's a balance of public and private investment, the country currently has a 5G strategy. We should have a national fiber strategy as well. Am I hearing you correctly? Yes, I would say so. I think it would definitely help with the 5G deployment. I mean, as it as it stands now. And, and, other, all of and other things, right? It would help with other mm -hmm. things too. 
Right. Right. Yeah. I, I certainly I understand what you're saying about those dead zones. Uh, you know, you it doesn't you don't have to drive very far away from the center of Silicon Valley to find places that that are really still of 1985, right? So, some uh, of them, some of them, even by choice, David. I might yes, of course, out. right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. There, there are definitely some. There are definitely some cities in the San Francisco Bay Area who have uh, chosen to remain in 1985, um, and they don't. They don't want to. Uh, they don't yep. want those deployments. And 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 all, all three of us have gone to those meetings and gone to those appeals and protests and and that's that is definitely a challenge um although i find it, it i find it very interesting that and i won't name the town but there was a somewhat notorious council meeting that occurred in one of the towns where they many residents showed up for it and they basically said you know over our dead body will you put anything like this in our town. We don't want it, we don't need it. I have a landline phone and I have DSL and I'm good and I'm happy with that. Um, the day that the shelter in place orders were issued in the San Francisco Bay Area, my understanding is, is that the residents of that town called their Congress, their congressional representatives and said, I'm stuck at home for who knows how long and my my smartphone doesn't work and my broadband's really slow and, and what are you going to do about it? And the congress the congressional representative called the carriers and said, you know, what are you going to do about this problem? And they they basically said they told us they didn't want it. And so now they want it. That's great. Um, but it isn't going to happen tomorrow. I mean, as Joanna pointed out, right, four years to do one small cell uh, cases where I've seen, I know, Tim, I know you, your company had a deployment that took almost a decade to complete. Um, this isn't going to happen next week. And so if, if we fail to act on these opportunities to deploy when we need the network, whether it's because of a pandemic whether it's because of an earthquake, whether it's because of something else that causes us to need that, that connectivity, it isn't going to be there. And you can't just flip a switch and turn it on. Uh, so I think it's important that the public understand and the cities, city leaders, elected staff, that they understand that these things take time and that it isn't just coming down from space, although I guess SpaceX would counter me and say that no, it, it is going to come from space. But 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 until that constellation is activated, and who knows when that'll actually happen, and if it's going to be viable, uh, we we can't guarantee that signals are going to be available to us from from random places. We have to build the infrastructure to make the network work. So we're getting close to the end of our time. I think there's a lot of this that is still needs to be talked about, and we're going to be doing that in other podcasts in this series over the course of the coming months. Joanna and Tim, what are the things that you want the audience to take away? I think this is a topic that's not going – we're not going to have solutions quickly. I mean, it's obviously challenging. 
which is why we're having this podcast to begin with, right? Um, I think something that would help I think this audience understand is what we're up against when we're facing jurisdictions for approvals, what it's going to take to get these sites built. When we've taken local away local control of essentially the right to or the discretionary approval right of a facility and all we leave them with is aesthetic control, we have to make sure that what we're proposing is really something that we can stand behind, right? It passes the smell test of, yes, I would want this in front of my house. So aesthetics matter. If we can make these things, these sites smaller and we can make them make sure that they don't make noise and they don't disrupt the community, I think we stand a better chance of convincing the members of the public, the local authority bodies that this is the best proposal to helping us reach the next generation of telecommunication services. And I think that's a really important point uh, to take away for, especially for the IEEE members in our audience, the people who are involved with uh, defining the market requirements, defining the engineering requirements for, for technology. Uh, a fan on a radio that's mounted on a tower that's in a field somewhere is fine. A fan on a radio that's mounted on a pole outside somebody's house is not fine. And cities have been very adamant about saying that that is something that they, that they do not want to approve. Looking at the supply chain on that, of course, it starts with the semiconductor design. You have to design semiconductors that don't emit a lot of heat. They have to be very efficient, which then gives the radio designer, the circuit designers, the opportunity to build a radio that does not have a fan, possibly some sort of passive cooling, because ultimately at the end of the day, you, Joanna, and you, Tim, have to put that on a pole somewhere, and then you have to go to a city and say, well, yeah, this thing does have a fan, and they're, they're going to have – you have to struggle with that reality. So if the, if the product development chain understands that low power, high efficiency is very important, then we can see better deployments that will face – at least that one checkbox of no fans is, is already checked. And that, that's really important. Tim, what are your thoughts? So, David, these are more in line with the, the value chain that you had outlined a little bit. Um, and I, I think deployment has to have a presence in the value perspective of the way, of way upstream in the design, to have a voice in the design and pre-production, including beta design. And then we need to look at the final downstream placement of that product. And I don't know if there is that presence, that voice that is saying, hey, great technology, guys, but we're never going to get it approved. Mm. And so I, I think that's critical. I think we need to educate that same audience, the designers who do such a good job at this, of give them design guidelines 
there's a really famous one that the city of San Diego put out and let them know, hey, this is what we have to comply with. And ultimately, if you can produce something that makes compliance easier, then we can get this deployed. And if you can put that design presence on equal footing with the design team, then I think you're going to be more successful. And David, I'll leave you with this. We had a meeting yesterday at a site north and west of San Jose, and you could sense a fear. I mean a literal fear over RF. And this was at an existing tower site. We never even talked about 5G. And this is this is what we run into daily. When a person says, well, I have broadband, wired broadband at my house, and I use my cell phone when I go out, so I don't need cell service at my house, so therefore I don't want it. What they're ignoring is that they may have neighbors in, in that same city, they're looking at some of the bigger cities in, in the San Francisco Bay Area that have wide wealth disparities across their neighborhoods. If, if you're resisting wireless on a citywide basis, you're, you're not accounting for the fact that people in that city, that may be the only way that they communicate. They're, they may only be able to afford, and the, and the data shows this, you know, 70% of Latinos in, in California are wireless only, that, that their phone is their method for communicating both voice, texting, data. 14% of California households access the internet only through a smartphone. So I think it's unfortunate that um, NIMBY communities that have the means to have multiple communications bills and pay those bills uh, forget that, that their, their resistance is actively affecting people in their community who, who don't have those means. And, and that's, that's really critical that we understand that, that there is a digital equity issue at play here. And if we can't build networks, then we're essentially excluding people from 21st century life because your connection is just, in our daily life in 2020, your connection is just as important as electricity, gas, water, sanitation. It's, it's a critical part of living in, in this time. And right. we, have to build, we have to build those networks. So this has been a great conversation. We've touched on a lot of topics. We've barely scratched the surface of some of them. I'm looking forward to having this conversation in future podcasts. The IEEE Future Networks Initiative has a program called the International Network Generations Roadmap. You can learn more on the website, futurenetworks.ieee.org, and we invite you to become involved in this important work. Be a part of what we're doing. The more people we have involved in this, the more information, the more expertise, the better the end result is going to be. We're also going to post show notes, transcriptions, links to resources on that website. I really want to thank my panelists for being part of this. Joanna, Tim, thanks so much for lending your expertise to what we did today. Always great to talk to you. It's been a pleasure. I am so grateful that you are 
for all that you do in this field in this industry to help shed light on these issues because I think it's extremely important for you know, those listening to understand what we're up against when it comes to making sure that people are staying connected and connected into the future. So thank you. David, thank you. This was fun. Would love to do it again. I think the more platforms you can get this message out, the more effective we'll be. And uh, look forward to having another one of these talks with you. Thanks very much. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this edition of the IEEE Future Networks podcast with the experts. Discover more about the IEEE Future Networks initiative and inquire about participating in this effort by visiting our web portal at futurenetworks.ieee.org.